Hi, this is Doug Howarth, and welcome to Smart Remarks, Howarth States. I'm Doug Howarth, and with me today is uh, my co-host, Dr. Kristen Smart. Hi, Kristen. How are you today? Oh, doing well. How are you? Very, very good. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to tell you a very exciting event that's happened since we last talked to you. And, and as we started this stuff out, we, we spoke once to you in February, once in March. As we speak today, it's the 23rd of April. And in that time, uh, Christian has signed a book deal with McGraw-Hill on a book about risk. Christian, why don't you say a little bit about what your book's about? Sure. It's... Uh... About project risk management, I uh, have a background in aerospace and defense, and um, I've known those are always risky. And in looking for someone to write a, uh, to uh, sign a book deal with, they they said, "Well, we'd, we're interested in this, but we need, need to look and see if it applies more broadly." So I did, and everything I'd found t- to be true about NASA and and defense was true for all sorts of projects: power plants, roads, bridges, um, all, all kinds of things, dams. Uh, the same principles apply, and so I've, I've written a book that's pretty broadly based. It's written, uh, um, I do some technical work, but it's, it's not written as a technical book. It's written as a book that anyone can read. It's, I hope project managers will read it because they really need to learn the lessons. It's There's uh, a long track record of high cost and schedule growth. That indicates two things. One is that uh, Projects are not really paying attention to risk management, and when they are doing it, they're not doing it well. So uh, my book is on these problems and how to fix them, and I talk about a lot of issues and, and provide uh, advice. So I don't just, uh, I'm not just throwing stones, I'm also collecting them. Well, that's, that's a good way to approach it. Now, Christian lives in Tennessee. I'm out here in, in the Southern California area, and out here, a project that caught my eye was what we call the high-speed rail project. It's It wants to be what they call a bullet train running from L.A. to San Francisco, and they came up with, as they all, all projects have to do, with an estimate some years ago, and they got approval to build it. And since then, there's been some problems, right, Christian? Yes, yeah, it's been quite a few problems. They uh, A lot of these large projects, this is – you know, in the, in the billions of dollars, these are sometimes called mega projects. And uh, this one particular mega projects had uh, numerous problems. Uh, and it's pretty common in these types of projects that they underestimate the costs and schedule and they overestimate the demand. So um, the initial projections were, uh, were around $40 billion. And the, the latest projections published as of last year were $77 billion. Wow. Um, and not only that, they've, they've reduced the scope dramatically. So it's really only, um, uh, not, that's not connecting San Francisco and Los Angeles. It's connecting, um, I think it's Madeira to Bakersfield, which, um, <laughs> and, and they're talking about not using high-speed trains. So it'd be using a regular Amtrak train going this, and, it, and that route basically is the same path as, as, a, as a highway between those two. So it's a lot of money for really little benefit. And uh, I don't think that many people are going to spend a hundred dollars on a ticket for a train when they can just drive their car up there for a tank of gas, especially now that uh, the price of gas has dropped so low with, with the pandemic. Yes. Uh, that's a good point. Um, one of the things that I do, I mean, Christian's big on risk. And one of the things that I study deeply along with um, risk, I don't do it to the depths Christian does, but we study in our little group 
uh, cost, value, and demand. And what we mean by value is what's the sustainable price for a product based on its features. And so when you're building a train, the features of that train would would consider would uh, consist of how far it goes, so the range of it, and then the speed of it. In this case, a net speed, because if they have stops, you got to get the net speed, and then the maybe the volume of space that each passenger has. So interestingly, Christian, I hadn't shared this with you. I think I ought to, but we did a study on the Japanese bullet trains, and we discovered that they're as you might predict, there was a uh, a relationship we could describe mathematically that addressed those three issues. You could figure out the value of the train service based on the distance that it went, the speed that it went at, and the volume that each passenger had to enjoy that trip. So there was more volume in the first cabin than there was in the second and then in the third. The other point that you raised there about demand is hugely important too. You, you're only going to get sufficient demand for high-speed rail if you've got large cities on either end of that rail line. And so that's the reason that high-speed rail works in places like China and Japan and Northern Europe because they'll they'll take a high-speed train that, I don't know if you've been on the channel train, uh, Christian, but we were on it three or four times, and they've got – I don't know, 10 or 12 cars with 50 people a piece. So they're taking 600, 700, 800 people at a pop at 300 kilometers per hour with only two stops between London and Paris. And uh, that's a problem for the bullet train here in uh, the high-speed rail train in, in California. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yep. That's an interesting project that the, uh, I guess it was once at one time called the Tunnel. Now I guess it's the Euro Tunnel. Yes. Um, it it doubled in cost, uh, but it actually was on delivered on time. But there there was some, um, you know, it was more difficult. They, all these programs always are subject to optimism, and so they underplan. Uh, so the cost did double, but uh, but usually when that happens, it's, there's usually some schedule increase. But in this case, it actually was on time. That's a that's a fairly rare kind of occurrence for something to increase in cost dramatically, but still meet its uh, schedule. Well, what's interesting too is if you study European history, you'll you'll see that there were others that tried to tunnel underneath the the channel uh, years before the, the channel project had completed, and um, there are other people that tried to connect, say, rivers in Europe to one another before they were successfully completed. So, last uh, about a year and a half ago, my wife and my mother-in-law and I all took a trip from Amsterdam down to. Hungary, and um, what we discovered was that the you know there's a that what's known as the Mine Rhine Canal passes between the Rhine along the Mine to the Danube, and that is this canal system is actually the tallest one built in the world. It's um, 1,240 feet above sea level. It's the highest oh, wow. sea level to sea level canal system there is in the world. And uh, wow. it's pretty phenomenal. So actually, we went from Budapest to um, Amsterdam. We went from basically the south to south east to northwest on this river. And one of the things you discover if you buy a book about the river was that the original attempt to make a canal that they just finished in the late 20th century 
the original attempt on that came with Charlemagne back before the year 1000. So uh, this, this has a lot, some of these projects have a long and storied history before somebody can actually pull them off. All right. So some, what are some of the other projects you're looking at in your, in your book there, uh, Christian? Um, there's a variety of things, you know, the, the, the Aerobus A380 uh, is a good example of, um, of, you know, a lot of times these projects have to forecast years and in, in years ahead. These take, you know, these, you, you can't just, just, you know, begin these and then finish in a few months. These take years. So, you know, Airbus A380, um, the, the Airbus A380 was, you know, big wide body. They were trying to uh, build a bigger airplane than the Boeing, you know, the, just those two, two companies in that market, really uh, Airbus and uh, Boeing. And uh, they're trying to build a bigger bot, a bigger plane than uh, Boeing. It wound up being a double-decker aircraft that was wider than a 747. Um, you know, the idea was to, you know, uh, you know, the idea was that, like for remote locations like Australia, these these big airplanes would, you know, provide economies of scale and carrying people from, uh, you know, Europe or America to a place like Australia. But, you know, the market kind of shifted and went, went towards smaller aircraft. And Boeing had kind of seen the writing on the wall and even tried to uh, tell Airbus that. But they proceeded ahead, and it's <laughs> been a consistent money loser for them. Uh, it was very – it's a very complex – you can imagine a double-deck aircraft. It's a very complex aircraft. Um, they never put in as many seats as they initially planned because the, the, the airlines, you know, didn't want people to get too crowded in this uh, – huge plane and also getting a lot large amounts of people on and off aircraft is uh, complex. So uh, they wind up not carrying a full capacity. There's lots of issues over that time. And it's been a pretty consistent money loser. They've uh, it's somewhat a subsidized project, some extent by the, by the mm -hmm. government because that it, there are parts of it that are built all throughout Europe, which adds to the complexity and it's, it's been a, been an issue, but the problem uh, that, that you have is there was never built in enough, quantity to make it uh, to make it economical to produce so they've they've consistently lost money they're kind of wrapping up their production uh, that's one of the interesting things is you think that uh, uh, and, and I've, you said this uh, very eloquently in your work is that uh, if you want to uh, if you want if you boot if you build more typically you pay less and manufacture goods and so if you want to achieve economies of scale and you want to bring prices down, uh, you need to produce more. And that's kind of paradoxical. It's not what you're traditionally taught in Economics 101, but you, you see it throughout pretty much all manufactured goods uh, in most industries that, that there's some excess capacity. And so if you can spread that fixed cost out among more uh, in products, you can you can reduce the cost. So that's always one problem. You know, uh, the, the, the Navy, has has uh, initially had intended to build a uh, a littoral combat ship, which littorals are the areas near you know shallow waters, and they mm -hmm. we were going to it was going to be a, a, a modular design so they could have th you know three different kinds. They initially had uh, two companies build the system, and then the idea was that they would wind up uh, picking the better boat and going with that. But they wound up carrying two designs with two companies into production. They wound up producing a lot less than they anticipated, so it's just been a a, a big money waste for for the Navy. Uh, the modular design never worked out. They had to scrap some of the uh, different uh, modules that they were going to use. Some of the boats broke, didn't they? 
some of the boats broke. There were a lot of technical problems. Uh, they, you know, the idea was you, you, if you had different purposes, that kind of thing, you could just swap these things in and out. Never worked out that way. Each one was had to be built for a specific purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, they they couldn't uh, they couldn't uh, put uh, large missiles on it for some time, uh, so it really didn't provide any over the horizon kind of uh, capability. So it's a lot a lot of problems um, a lot of problems with those spacecraft uh, and that with that uh, kind of ship. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of issues with that. So yeah, there's uh, all kinds of um, examples of that throughout history of, uh, but you know, quant- quantity is a big one. That's not something that people often appreciate. Um, you know, and, and you, it, all these things are con- attributed to uh, government type uh, programs, but they happen in private industry as well. Um, you know, inter- inter- enterprise resource planning systems are, have been all the rage for about 20, 30 years. Uh, but sometimes they're, they're very difficult to implement and they've even uh, caused companies to go out of business. Oh yeah. So, um, you know, Fox Meyer was a big pharmaceutical wholesaler in the mid nineties. Their annual revenues were in excess of $5 billion. Wow. And they, their, their mainframe, they were, they were still using mainframes and, uh, their supplier was about to basically go out of business, you know, and, and so they had to, they had to do something to replace it. And they basically went all in on a new system, but the new system was slower and less capable. And they wound up, they had a lot of cost overruns and schedule delays and it pretty much drove the company out of business. Oh boy. Wow. Well, you know, getting back to what you said about the, the Airbus A380, one of the things that uh, we do over here is we look at how the market responds to changes in price relative to how many they buy. I mean, we know that in broadly in economics is demand, but what we've discovered is that there are several ways to characterize demand uh, one of the most interesting ones, ways to characterize demand is to see that there's a limit or what we call a frontier. And the frontier is just like it sounds. It's a, it's a limiting boundary. Sometimes it's set with one line. Sometimes it's set with two. There could be an upper limit in a market and there could be an outer limit in a market. And you can imagine these as two lines. The upper limit is roughly parallel to a horizontal axis and the outer limit is typically diagonal to the both axes. And what these limits express is that there's a, a certain saturation point on the upper side. That's what we call a, a, a price boundary, which is to say that if you try to price anything higher than that, you're going to get very few, if any sales, you you basically hit the limit of what anybody can afford to buy. So take another example from aerospace at one point, there was a presidential helicopter program that was viable several years ago, and the winning company started to work on it, and the helicopter price went up from $100 million to each to $200 million, and then eventually went over $300 million, which at the time was, to get back to Christian's original example, which was more expensive than the A380. That's a plane that could hold 600 people at one time. This is a helicopter that was designed for about 20 people. And at a certain point, the, you know, even the government, who was the customer for this, even the government has to throw up their hands and said, ah, you've exceeded our, our, our threshold. We can't buy anything more at that price. So with the A380, what happened was that <clears throat> there is a boundary that formed, was a boundary that formed. It continues to be formed. Every day that there's somebody that pushes something to the frontier, it can move it. And 
that frontier wasn't examined by Airbus and they supposed that they were going to be able to build beyond the frontier and the frontier told them otherwise. Very interestingly, and, and that, you know, we keep talking, especially Christian and I who came from aerospace is they, there's a little phrase that they like to use in aerospace. Have you heard this one, Christian? Uh, let's look at lessons learned. Have you, have you heard that before? Oh Yeah. Yeah, well, I think lessons forgotten would probably be more appropriate. Yes, yes, well, yes, uh, yeah. And then there was a, a big catchphrase in the nineties and uh, early two thousands: "New ways of doing business," yes. which wound up being doing business the same old way. Uh, right. yeah. NASA had an interesting, but there's been some experiments with trying to, uh, you know, uh, cut costs. NASA kind of went overboard in the wrong direction in the nineties with faster, better, cheaper, mm-hmm. um, and they wound up. Uh, you know, a lot of, had a lot of uh, project failures as a result. So, um, you know, it's, you know, and then, so now, but now it's kind of gone back to uh, performance at any cost or any schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at a, um, I was at a meeting and the uh, acting NASA administrator at the time uh, told a, a crowd full of costs and schedule estimators on, uh, you know, all, all anyone cares about is the, uh, performance you know at the end of the day as long as it works no one remembers how much it cost or how long it took <laughs> and that's unfortunately that's the attitude that a lot of uh project managers have i think uh sure. is yeah. is performance at all costs um and um i think the the you know it's good it's good to get make make sure things work uh i think sometimes there's a little bit of an engineering bias in in uh in these projects and that that leads them to focus on performance to the exclusion of considerations of, of uh, schedule and, and cost trade-offs. Well, back to your point and, and back to the, the, the whole problem of the Airbus A380 and, and what we're talking about, lessons learned and lessons forgotten. So the Airbus is a consortium of British, French, and in this case, German teams, along with some, some of the other countries in Europe, the Dutch, the Spanish, um, They've all contributed something to the A380. But back, oh, roughly 45, 50 years ago, the, the British and the French decided to team up on this project they called Concorde. You probably heard about it. That was a supersonic passenger jet that could carry 100 people. And if you do enough digging, and I did, you'll find that the original estimate for the market size for this plane was somewhere that somewhere in the neighborhood of two to 300 customers. Now, the way I believe most people come to some sort of estimate like that is they go out and ask people, hey, if we built this thing, would you buy it? If we build it, will you come? And people, especially very early on, are very optimistic about what they can and can't do. And so, you know, there were several airlines that say, yeah, we take X number of them. We take, you know, Y number of them. We'll take Z. And so the, the program launched. It didn't launch with 300 orders like it said it would. And long story short, the Concord stopped production after they made 20 units. So if you look at the builders of the Concord hoping to retrieve their investment, they didn't retrieve their investment because you can't make 20 vehicles and, and make a return on that money, on those monies with just that, that, that few of a number of planes being built. In in present day times, there's another company called Arion that's building something called the AS2. And this wants to be a supersonic business jet. 
And five years ago, they launched and they had an order for 20. And they said, well, we anticipate we're going to build 300. Stop me if you think that number sounds familiar. 300 in a decade. <laughs> 500 over the course of the program. Probably, you know, using the same kind of analysis. And my analysis showed, looking at the, something called the demand frontier, that when they launched back in 2014, if you took the previous 10 years' data, they, my analysis said that they had about a 10% chance. This gets back to what Christian does, looking at a risk distribution. They had about a 10, they had about a 10% chance of making that figure. So fast forward five years, have a new demand frontier. They still have only 20 orders by you know, my latest swipe across the internet, which was today, they still only have 20 orders and their chances of, of making the 300 in a decade has fallen off to about one in, one chance in 40. So these are real phenomena that people haven't started to study yet. And we're trying to encourage people to study these, these phenomena so they don't run into problems. So back to Christian's original point, the, the thing he was alluding to about the engineers getting kind of excited, I guess would be the best word, or really enthusiastic about their project is that if you're you're an engineer and you're in aerospace and you're making the only supersonic device that's around, it's, it's exciting. And what you have to ask yourself if you're part of the business end of that proposition is, okay, it's exciting, but is there going to be, is there, are we going to get a return from this? Is there enough money out there? And sometimes there isn't. So that's part of what Christian and I want to look at is how can we make sure that we have enough money to make the products that we're proposing? Right. Yeah. The, the, the intent is to, to help projects and businesses, you know, both our work is to help them succeed. And um, you know, it's, uh, and they, they don't necessarily have to get everything right. Uh, They just have to be better than their competitors. And I think what we offer can help provide that edge. You know, there's the joke about the um, two hikers in the woods and they, they see a, a brown bear coming towards them and one hiker pulls out his, his running shoes from his backpack and the other one says, you can't outrun that bear. And the, the guy says, well, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> yeah, I love that one. That's great. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's the, that's the hugely important point. You don't have to be, the best of all time at any one point in time, you get, you just have to be able to, as Christians say, outrun your competition or you got to find a place where there's no competition. So if using a Christian's idea about the guy being next to a bear, if he could jump across a, uh, if he could, you know, grab a tree and jump across a Creek without having to run, he's in a, in a wide open space that, you know, he, he doesn't have to worry about the bear. Whereas his buddy would be back there in a highly occupied space where there's a lot of competition, namely the bear for the open space. And you want to be eaten up by the bear. So. Right. You want to find the bear free zones. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, um, yeah. So another uh, uh, thing springs to mind with risk is, do you know, you know what happens, what begins tonight? Begins tonight. Um, The, uh, the NFL draft. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, and in fact, um, that's they were just saying that's the, about the only live sports action that any any sports fan has had in in weeks. Yes, 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they, I guess, how they do that. Are they going to, I guess, I mean, usually they have a large audience, but I mean, that's gone. But I guess they'll, they'll have all the players and the teams in the room or something. I don't know. But um, the, uh, you know, I'm a Alabama fo- fan of Alabama football. And yeah. speaking of risk, you know, there's a, uh, Alabama's uh, has several first round prospects. Uh, but the top one is probably the quarterback, uh, right. Tua Tonga Valoa who has his own set of risks because, you know, he's had uh, quite a few injuries, most recently a, a broken hip. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how NFL teams, you know, look at the risk reward and, and where he gets drafted. I've, uh, you know, Joe Burrow from LSU is probably going to be number one, but uh, is, will Tua be the second quarterback off the board or will he be a little farther down because of the risk? Yeah, and, and speaking of risk, I mean, this can go two ways. I mean, if his hip goes the way of Bo Jackson, you know, Bo Jackson 20 years ago broke his hip and never was the same. But then you can take a look at somebody else, uh, Drew Brees. You probably know the Drew Brees story pretty well, don't you, Christian? I mean, he was yep, drafted, yep. and he had a shoulder problem, and he didn't pass a physical with one with uh, the, his first outfit. And then he went, wasn't that, where was that? That was Miami, was it? Uh, maybe so. I, I don't, I'm not sure where he was before he was with New Orleans. Yeah. Well, he ended up with, uh, of course the New Saints. Orleans and the rest is history. So you have to look long and hard about what, what you believe the risk to really be so that you can try to quantify it. And that's kind of a hard yeah, thing. I, I guess the concern is on some teams is he's, he hasn't just had that one risk. He's had two high ankle sprains and he's also had a broken hand. So well, he could just um, be unlucky too. I mean, could know. be, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the NFL draft tonight—that's that's, that's going to be a a big event for virtual TV right now. It'd be interesting to see how they pull that off. So, Christian, what are some of the other chapters in your book so that somebody can get an idea what you what you're addressing in here? So, give us a, a flavor if you could pepper us with some chapter titles. You know, maybe a couple today and. So we, and then maybe a couple in the next, over the next few episodes, we get an idea what it is that you're addressing and why it's important. That would be. Sure. Annoying. Yeah. I spent a little bit of background. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Doug. So I spent a little bit of background time talking about cost and schedule growth and it's pretty widespread phenomenon. It's been going on a long time. It's not getting any better. So, um, and uh, I look at the, the both the, uh, the data, you know, you know, what are, what are the overruns like? When do they occur? How often do they occur? And also tell some stories behind that. You know, I'm I'm from the South. My family is uh, big on storytelling, and uh, so um, that I have a chapter kind of kind of tells about the 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 the, the how. You know, how how do these programs uh, fail? And mm-hmm. um, and then I talk about you know we need to consider risk. Um, and even when we, when we consider risk, there's a lot of issues. And so I'll say that for next time, but. I won't go into details on that, but there's a lot of issues. Uh, I'll just tease with, with one of those. And one of those is that even when we estimate risk, uh, we don't do it well. There's a uh, pretty big emphasis on doing things qualitatively uh, uh, or even when quantitatively, there's, you know, the, what they call a risk matrix. And they look at cause and consequence and they look at some discrete events that significantly underestimates risk. And even when we quantitatively assess risk, we still underestimate it. The track record, on assessing risk is really bad. It's like, um, you know, it's like if you were to play darts and as soon as you threw the dart 
you turned your head away from the dartboard and you never saw where the dart landed. You would never know if you were a really good dart player or a really bad dart player. You would never have any way of improving, but we don't tend to have to look at that. And I've actually dug up some data on costs and a couple of points for schedule. It's even worse for schedule than costs. You know, my book yes. covers both costs and schedule risk management. Um, I cover up, I was able to, to, to dig out about 10 data points on, on, you know, uh, cost risk assessments and how well they were. And in, in most cases, unfortunately, um, the actual cost exceeded the 90% confidence level. So there should have been only a 10% chance that these projects would have exceeded the 90% confidence level. So you only expect, you know, zero or one to, to, uh, to exceed that, but, but actually nine out of 10 did. So, um, wow. so yes, yeah, so it's, it's pretty, pretty dismal track record. So that's kind of what, what a lot of the books about and talks about that. And, um, and, I'll just give one solution for that problem is, is to actually look at the historical costs and schedule growth data and actually calibrate to it. And you don't necessarily have to uh, necessarily plan for that, but at least do the calibration to the historical track record to mm-hmm. see what you could experience, right? There, there could be a few things that are in there that you, you your projects might not want to plan for. Um, you know, if you're a project manager, you can't plan for everything. You can't plan for the current pandemic, unfortunately. Um, you know, you can't plan for 9-11, but it's a lot of things that projects should plan for, they're not planning for. Yeah, and, and collectively, and in, in, at least in aerospace, I don't know if they use this outside of aerospace, the, we, we used to call those the unknown unknowns. And I, I was doing a um, little estimate on on trying to work out a maritime project that was being performed that, in the Netherlands. And so the Netherlands had a bunch of dirt that was excavated to create a, uh, a port of some sort. And so they decided, well, maybe we can make some use of this dirt and make another keys, you know, a pier so we can dock some boats. So they started, started work on the pier. And of course they knew how long the pier was going to be and how deep it needed to be and how much they had to dredge in front of it. But the one thing they hadn't accounted for was that there was a certain bird that liked to nest in that part of the world. And that bird was protected by the, the government of the Netherlands and they couldn't disturb the nests of the bird during the project. So they had to wait until the birds went through their nesting phase so that they could uh, work on the project. And so that's, you know, less dastardly than some of the other things that we've seen here that you're talking about. But, you know, who puts in, you know, time spent waiting for the birds to finish nesting? Nobody does that, right? How do you handle that? That's a question somebody might want to ask you. What do you do there? Right. So what what, what would you say to somebody like that when they say that? Can you just put in another category that say, well, we're going to have some unknowns? And, well, here, well, that's when you, that's where the track record kind of, kind of helps you. You don't necessarily want to model everything bottom up because you're going to miss things. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to try to do that to some extent. You want to put very, like you said, put variation on the inputs. You also want to mm-hmm. add in the uncertainty from looking at historical data, which captures the majority of the risk. And you also want to look at just what's the historical track record. And, and so that won't capture everything explicitly, but it will kind of give you a sense of almost like give you the, the overall growth statistics on things that are likely to happen to a project. Cause if you look at these projects, they don't just suffer from, 
one, you know, it's not, it's not just one risk that's being realized or, or two, it's multiple things. You know, it's sure. like, it's almost like the injuries you would see from someone in a, in a really bad car accident. You know, they got a, they got a, uh, like shattered disc in their back and they got a broken leg and, you know, and they got all kinds, they got all kinds of internal bruises and can be ruptured spleen. They got all kinds of things going on. Um, mm -hmm. So there, you know, it's, uh, there, there's multiple things that happen. If you look at the historical track record, you, you can kind of see on average what those things are. And that will, that will capture some of those, some of those variations like that. Uh, almost like the way that actuaries uh, calculate the mortality table. They look at all, all the sources of, of risk mm -hmm. to life and they kind of get a sense of what the, not only what the average is, but what the variation is around that. And that gives them a way to plan. And so the, you know, the idea is, is, is having some sort of plan. And the, you know, the, the key thing is you, you need to have a, a plan in place and not just, have a plan. You also have to set aside reserves, and that's where projects really get into trouble. Is there's no there's no plans in place for when costs or schedule grow, so they're just uh, it's kind of chaotic. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So when I raised the thing about the birds nesting, I mean, if if you were to do well, when Christian says for those of you that aren't in our industry, when he talks about bottoms up estimating, what what that that little phrase means in our vernacular is that you take an engineering project, there might be several engineering groups and tooling groups and planning groups and all the groups have something to do and they might all estimate their piece of the pie. And you take all those little pie wedges and what Christian's talking about is that the sum of those pie wedges isn't the sum of all the pie wedges you're going to see at the end. Other stuff appears that you hadn't figured on. And so when he's talking about calibrating to the total operations he's trying to get the stuff that was that was actually realized and what he's getting at too when he's talking about the budget reserves is somebody this happens very frequently in aerospace is somebody says well i know i've got all these groups here and then i've got their costs covered and i've added 10 percent. why do i need anything more and somebody like christian would say well because the historical record shows you need some more stuff um you know this this current pandemic that we're facing this is the pandemic that uh, my grandparents faced back in the early 1900s. In fact, I had a grandfather that flew in World War I in France. And so he was, wasn't very far away from the epicenter of the, uh, of the outbreak there. And he may well have transported that back home with him. But he, he and his wife, my grandmother, both managed to live. But, you know, who was counting on a Spanish flu 100 years ago? Uh, probably no one. Uh, we've seen movies about potential asteroids hitting us again that could wipe out the earth. And just like people talk about the, the, the pandemics being, you know, that eventually it's going to come. It's not if, it's when. Uh, sooner or later, a pretty large rock's going to hit us again, and that's going to be a problem. So what are we going to, what steps are we going to take to prevent a large rock from hitting us? And so that we we can basically keep the planet going. So it, there's, um, there's a mechanism yeah. that needs to be put into place, I, I would argue, Christian, based on your work in large part, that would talk about, well, what do we do? Where's the fund for the risk pool? You know, for things that just generally are going to mess up the planet, where's our risk, our risk pool for that? We don't have that at the federal government level, do we? Well, uh, no, except just to print, intentionally, you know, borrow more money or, or what they call printing more money. Um, the, the, the and, and that's, I think, one 
one unfortunate uh, part of the current situation is, uh, you know, the idea, um, you know, is, is should have been before this point, the government should have been cutting down the debt because the economy was growing. Everything was mm-hmm. going pretty well. The, the government should have been cutting down the debt. They should have been cutting the deficit. The, the deficit right. wasn't a downward trend up until the last few years. And, um, and it's been ballooning since then. So, you know, you shouldn't run a, a deficit or such a large deficit, especially when things are going well, because when things are going bad, then you're, the deficit's going to be even worse. And that's the, the unfortunate situation for me now. And we could have, uh, uh, you know, a three or four trillion dollar deficit by the time all this is over. I mean, that's unprecedented. And I don't know what that is going to do to how that's going to overhang on the economy and impact economic growth going forward. But that's bad. So we, yeah. So one, one thing is, I mean, if we get this thing straightened out, you know, we're going to be in a situation where we're going to be uh, constrained by that debt for a long time. Um, but we do oh, need yeah. to do some planning. There's, 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 there's that aspect as a financial plan part, but I mean, there's a lot of other planning that needs to, to take place. I mean, uh, COVID has kind of uh, ruined the economy for, you know, probably the worst uh, recession since the great depression. Um, and then th- we need, there's other things we need to do, you know, in terms of mitigation and risk management, besides just providing uh, financial reserves, there's a lot of things that, you know, pandemics, uh, there's people that are experts at that. We need to, you know, establish and, you know, fund more work to help prevent those kinds of outbreaks in the future. Gives a lot of things that could, uh, like you mentioned, uh, asteroids. Uh, there's a lot, of, I've been thinking about this in terms of extreme risks. We need to, to come together as a, as uh, a species really and, and plan, you know, to uh, plan for survival. You know, we, we don't want to become extinct in the next hundred years because of some no. bad event that happens. And we, we, you know, we have a lot of intelligence, a lot of capability in science. And I think we could uh, potentially offset these things. Well, I, I know there's a seed vault. Is that in Norway or I think it's in Norway. High, High above the Arctic Circle, I think in Norway, we have a seed vault where all the all the seeds of all the primary plants and that we use for agriculture and, and hundreds more are all stored in case we have some sort of global event that would wipe out the plants. Um, but you know, back to that point, what do we do about other types of events? There was an eruption. 70,000 years ago in which a, a good hunk, a, a, you know, a volcano blew up and it took the entire, took the entire population of the world, which wasn't, I think it was about 2 million at the time, 70,000 years ago. And it, it took it down to, they were thinking around 2000 individuals, 2000 humans, which meant that there would only have been a few hundred females, women of, uh, childbearing age. So we've actually had bottlenecks where we were very close to being wiped out before. And so getting back to your risk parameters here, Christian, it seems to me that we, you know, in, in portfolio analysis, I know what you're big on. I don't want you to give away all your stuff you're doing on that, but you try to spread the risk. I wonder how we might be able to spread the risk of localized and then global events. So maybe, maybe you could take a, a localized event first and then see how we would spread the risk out. So suppose that we had a, 
another Mount St. Helens blow up and it took Northwest out of commission as it did back in the day um, for a few months. Uh, what would be your solution maybe to try to get a, a mitigating fund or, or approach or, or technique around something like that? that? Maybe that's the easier thing to answer is how do you handle a localized event like that before we went to a national or worldwide event? What would you, what would you think we ought to do in a situation like that? Uh, in terms of a, well, local events, I mean, trying to uh, limit, limit the spread, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. at one point the pen, the coronavirus was, a local event in China. So right. trying to stop it at the source, you know, that, that kind of thing uh, where we can treat it at the source and, and stop it, you know, basically instead of flattening the curve, crush the curve. Right. Um, right. right. Um, and the same time, you know, once that occurs, um, you know, other places, you know, if we, if we had shut down sooner, uh, we could probably already have been reopened by now. You know, I mean, there are things that we could have done that would have taken care of this, um, you know, and, um, but you know, it's hindsight's always twenty twenty, so you can't always. But we need to prepare for the next one, and we need not only prepare for the next pandemic. We need to prepare for like things you mentioned, like asteroids. We need, and I know NASA is tracking some of these large asteroids, mm-hmm. and they do keep track of them. But we need to have some kind of capability in place that if a large asteroid comes our way, we have the means to divert it. You know, we we right. have the science to do these kinds of things. Um, you know, there's there's two kinds of threats like that when we need to come up with a list of these things and, and uh, have mitigation plans in place. So uh, there was a a huge gamma ray burst uh, some Mm -hmm. long time ago that could happen again. That could wipe out a large amount of humanity. There could be another super volcano. You know, what do we do in that case? Um, You know, we need to look at these things and and try to try to plan for them because uh, we don't want to become extinct in the next hundred or 200 years. There's all kinds of things uh, that a variety of people have uh, raised alarms about um, artificial intelligence uh, is a, right. a concern. You know, what if uh, they call reach the point of singularity where uh, these uh, artificial intelligence become self-aware and they, they start, uh, they develop some sort of goal of reproducing themselves and they take over all of our resources. Um, right. Um, so they become, you know, they'll become self-aware, but they also, they're some, somehow superior to us, you know? And so um, that's a problem uh, cyber, cyber warfare that, that, you know, we're so dependent now, we're even more dependent on electronics now mm-hmm. at this time, because we're all at home, you know, you and I are talking through the internet, mm-hmm. uh, but some sort of cyber warfare from either a rogue nation or from uh, Russia, um, you know, that, that could, uh, that could, that could really hurt us at this time and oh, get yeah. harder efforts to stay at home because we're so dependent on that now. Um, you know, a biotechnology, nanotechnology, what if something goes haywire there? Now, some of those things are, those are kind of potentially problems of our own making with artificial sure. intelligence, biotech, nanotech, pesticides, uh, g- genetically modified organisms, um, um, you know, like for plants and things. What if, you know, we're, we're poisoning ourselves, um, overpopulation what do we do about those problems are we you know if we um wind up uh having more people than we can support uh what happens then you know what do, what do we do yeah. so all these kind of things we need to think about and plan for some of it may be you know i know elon musk is trying to uh, plan for the day that that humans you know, start colonizing mars or places like that if we had if we wanted to do some diversification if we couldn't uh, you know colonize another planet maybe 
make Mars habitable. Uh, that might be uh, something. You know, the, there's a interesting uh, scientist. Uh, I think his name is Bob Zubrin. That's been studying mm -hmm. Mars for a long time, and they found a large um, area of frozen water on Mars. And so he was t talking recently about going in into that, digging under it, and then warming the water underneath the uh, that the ice cap on top, and and that mm -hmm. could be a habitable. That could be a habitable place. You could put in fish and other things, and uh, with breathing apparatuses, people could live there. And, um, Fascinating. You know, there's all kinds of all kinds of options like that at some point. But yeah, there's there's a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of threats that that we face. Um, you know, one of the things we're talking about is, uh, or NASA's looking at, is putting nuclear rockets in space. Now, these are not. Uh, these are low enriched uranium, so it's not as radioactive, but this still you're putting uh, nuclear rockets in space, these large nuclear rockets. Uh, mm -hmm. The latest plans uh, don't have any uh, plans to dispose of them or bring them back. There's going to be up there <laughs> for uh, doing a test. Uh, right. What happens if one of those comes crashing to Earth? It's going to, you know, could cause a lot more damage than Skylab. You know, have, have we yeah. really considered what the, what the impacts of those kinds of things are? So there's a lot of things we, you know, the things, you know, external threats we face, you know, pandemics, uh, things outside the Earth's atmosphere, but it's also things that we do to ourselves. Uh, climate, climate change, you know, mm -hmm. it's uh, sea levels rise. That's going to threaten, um, you know, most of the population lives near the coast. Um, so it's going to threaten, um, you know, that it may change our, you know, people's way of life. They may have to move inland, you know, things like that as, as the sea levels continue to rise. So there's all kinds of things that we need to think about and plan for. And cause it's all these things are remote. You know, these, these are things that are not likely to happen. This current pandemic, I think people have, you know, there's so smart people have said they knew it was going to happen. We've had a series of small pandemics mm -hmm. that were tamped out pretty quickly. This one apparently is much more contagious and there's a variety of reasons why COVID-19 uh, has been a lot worse than the previous, but, uh, and things like SARS, but, um, these are things that are fairly low likelihood, but they're big consequence. And that's one of the issues that we have in looking at risk is we, we focus more on the likelihood. We don't worry about things that are not likely to happen. Right. But we that's should, we should be, but we, should, we really should take into account also the consequence. You know, yeah. if, if you were to play Russian roulette, there, there's an, uh, you know, more than 80% chance you're going to survive. But what happens when you don't? Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, if, you know, when you don't win the game, you you die. So you got to take into account both the likelihood and the consequence, and that's that's one of the big uh, big issues that people have with relating to risk and, and thinking about risk is consequence is really more important than likelihood. You know, what's interesting is you bring up the the sea rise, which is indisputable at this point. In fact, there I I remember seeing a very sad tale of some people that lived in a low-line um, Southeast Asian part of the world. And, and these poor kids were trying to throw mud onto the sea to make the, line, the land rise. And they're doing it by, by hand and in buckets. And you and I both went to the Netherlands, to Nordvik, a little town south of Amsterdam by about 50 miles. What, what year was that? Is that 09 we went there? 2008. Yeah. 2008. Okay. 
Well, what impressed me about Nordvike, and this is getting back to consequences here, did you, did you notice the Nordvike? This is fascinating, ladies and gentlemen. If you haven't been there, you, it's really amazing. So what happens in the Netherlands, near as I can tell, is that nobody has a house on the North Sea. What they do then is to, to keep the North Sea out, if they don't have penstocks where rivers empty out, and that's what they have at every, every major river is they have a very large gate to prevent the ocean from backing up the river if the, if the seas rise. If you don't have a penstock or a dam or something like that, what you have then is you've got this large earthen structure. So my recollection in Nordbike, Christian, was that you had this basic sand dune that was obviously engineered that started at the ocean it rose to the level of about, I don't know, 60 to 80 feet, about right, right. three or 400 yards in. And then every structure was, and then this, this dune feathered back for, I, I, I thought it feathered back for a, at least a half mile. Maybe it was a full mile so that you, you could take the force of, that, of the ocean so it wouldn't crumble. So you had this big, big hill and everybody was, everybody's building, every building in the town was on the, inland side of this of the of this wall i mean you can maybe see the ocean if you had in the top room of your hotel that was on the land side of this of the uh, of this hill but everybody that was living in the netherlands they didn't have a seaside house and so you can imagine talking about consequences then where i was going with this is that imagine you have a house i mean we have seaside houses here in southern california imagine if you're in Ventura, where my, my daughter lives, and, and imagine you have an oceanside house, and the, these houses are only six, eight, ten feet above the ocean, the sea level max, you know? Right. So what happens when the sea level rises? It, well, if you want to keep that house there, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to do what they did in Amsterdam, and that's not going to build, a, you're not going to build a, you know, a, a wall of sandbags and hold back the sea because there's too much force behind it. So what you're going to have to do, I believe, in low-lying areas like this, if you want to keep them above water, if you're not going to leave the area, and, and parenthetically, they've talked about leaving New Orleans you know, to basically get flooded, and I don't think that's going to happen. But if you don't want to leave the area, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to do what they did in the Netherlands, which is either put up a big gate made of steel that rises when the waters come in, which would be prohibitively expensive or which will be as won't be as expensive, but something you could do is you could build a big reclaim reclamation of the, of the sea by building out a massive sand dune that would protect you from the, the rising waters and which would be basically a, an ocean dam built out of the sand or dirt or rock or some combination of that. So, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, in, in places like New York and Los Angeles, San Francisco probably had the resources to do that. Other, other coastal towns probably won't, but I can see, I can see big cities like that having the resources to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so this, this poor country that I, I saw where these, these, you know, grade school kids were trying to, beat back the ocean with their buckets of sand. I mean, your heart just goes out to them, but they, you know, they don't have the resources to do that. So what's going to, what are you going to do for those people when they be, you know, they get uh, literally put underwater, you know? There'll be, yeah, there'll be climate refugees going somewhere else. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's something we need to, you know, that's one thing that uh, we need to plan for and try to offset it best we can. I mean, I know that some countries are taking it seriously. The U.S. left that um, Paris Accord, I guess, a few years ago, but um, something we need to take seriously and, and plan for it because it's already happening. So, yeah, yeah. So it, what'll happen is, I mean, I thought Hurricane Sandy would be a bigger wake up call than it was to the coastal towns on the East Coast. And, but apparently it wasn't, but what'll start to happen with more frequency is that you're going to see some high tide events that you're going to have several towns wash out. And then, then what are you going to do? Are you going to leave them where they are? Or are you going to do, take the, the Netherlands model? Or are you going to take some long acting, you know, a series of events that'll eventually take care of the problem, but you still, you're going to have a long-term and a short-term effect that you have to handle. Right. Right. Now, yep. interestingly, when it comes to risk, um, do you, does your book address uh, long, short-term and long-term risks, or what do you, how do you break, or do you make a distinction about that, how those break apart, or what's your feeling about that in general? Well, I, I kind of look at the role of uh, you know, look, I look at risks over the typically over the long term, but uh, and how one of the things I, I do address is uh, how should reserves be, you know, because you have to put some reserves in how should they be phased? And typically mm -hmm. in development, um, you know, other types of projects that there's short-term and long-term risk, you look at both, but in development, most of the, the risks are in the later stages once you start trying to put things together um, and, um, and start building things. That's typically where most of the risk occurs. So that phasing needs to happen uh, later in the project. That all needs to be taken into account. You know, you can't just say, oh, I've got a hundred million dollars of risk in my project. I just, I'll, uh, it's a 10 year project. I'll, I'll give the project $10 million a year. You've got to take into account when the risk occur and when the money will be needed potentially. I imagine you track when the risks occur too, right? Do you, you do that? Um, no, 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 I don't. Um, uh, well, most of the, like if you look at, except for development, the development, uh, most of the risk occurs in later stages. So if you're looking mm -hmm. at a development project, but um, no, I don't, I don't really look at, at uh, the rival rate of risks. Uh, and, and that, that is a, a that kind, of, kind of dynamic financial management. That is uh, kind of un, untapped uh, area that's a lot of uh, potentially, a lot of work potentially to be done there. But yeah, I haven't looked a lot at, at uh, arrival times of risk. Smart Remarks, Howard States is brought to you by Me Inc., the discoverers of and world leader in multidimensional economics. Please visit our website at www.meevaluators.com. You can address your questions to the show at info at meevaluators.com. You can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash M-E-E-L-L-C. You'll follow us on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash meevaluators. On Twitter at at me4d. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at at Douglas underscore Howard. <laughs>